we say Happy New Year to each other, we hope that this year will be better than the last. And a lot of us were glad to see 2019 go. And we always have hopes for the new year. And then at the same time, we find ourselves in a presidential election year at this time in, in America. And so we, we know what's coming this year. We know what the atmosphere is going to be like. We know that we live in a time of division and polarization, increasing division and polarization. Many of us probably have had awkward conversations over the holidays with family members if politics came up. And, and so one of, the, one of the rules, supposedly, that we follow in our society is that you should never talk about religion and politics in public. Have you heard that? We are throwing that out the window in this series. And so I think the reason why so many people would say, oh yeah, you should never talk about these things in public, is not that we don't hold opinions, because if you ask somebody what their opinion is right now, you're probably going to get an answer. Have you experienced this? And it's probably not that reason, and it's probably not because we believe that these things don't matter, because I think many of us do believe, believe they matter a great deal. I think we say that often in our society because we don't really know how to talk about religion and politics in a way that doesn't fracture relationships, in a way that doesn't make life more difficult in a way that doesn't lead to division and fighting and polarization and anger. I think, I think that's why we say that, is because we have such a hard time talking about it. And so in this series, we have the opportunity, as a community of people who say we want to follow Jesus, to model what it looks like to talk about issues that matter a great deal, but talk about them in a way that doesn't cause us to hate each other. We have the opportunity to demonstrate that even if you disagree, disagreement does not have to equal hatred. And that's a very difficult and important lesson, I think at least, at this time in, uh, in our history. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at several issues that are going to come up this year in, in the election. And we are asking ourselves, as people of faith, what does our faith say to us about these issues? Now, there are people, of course, who would write, what about the separation of church and state? Well, what that means is that the United States does not have an official religion. That's what the separation of church and state means. It does not mean that people of faith should not think about issues or that your values, whether you're a person of faith or not, shouldn't apply to political issues. That's not true. I mean, of course, whatever you believe is important in your life, of course you're going to bring that to these issues. But as people of faith... We want to do everything in our lives. We want to think about every issue in terms of, well, what does Jesus say about that? And, and our desire to follow Jesus, how does that play in to what we believe about these things and how we treat each other in, in the process? So we can have very strong opinions. And so our disclaimers during this series are, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. You should vote your conscience. I do think you should vote. I think you should vote your conscience. I am also not saying in this series, well, just, let's just be quiet and silent and never have disagreements with people. That's, that's not going to happen. That's not reality. And as Ellie Vassell said famously, silence always helps the oppressor. So if something unjust is happening in society and we're silent about it, all that does is perpetuate the injustice. So we're not, we're not advocating for silence. What we are saying is we can apply our faith to these issues and our faith tells us that the way we talk about these issues is as important as the issues themselves. 
and that we can love our neighbor as ourselves even when we disagree, even when we do speak up as we should. What other way is there in the culture that we live in, in the broken, divided culture that we live in, to just dive in and practice what we preach and give our best thought and compassion to all of these issues? Um, My pledge to you is that during this series, I'm going to do my best to fairly summarize two sides on each, each issue. My goal is that regardless of what you believe about each issue, you will at least feel like you were fairly heard. You were fairly represented. You weren't mocked. You weren't belittled. You weren't uh, you know, browbeaten for your beliefs, but to fairly represent each side. And then what I'm going to do, acknowledging that I'm an I'm a individual, I'm a, I'm a male uh, in the 21st century, and I have my own lenses that I look at the Bible through. We all do. I'm going to do my best to thoughtfully ask how can our faith apply to that issue and as humbly as possible share a view at the end of the sermon that I think applies. And what if you disagree with me? Is that okay? I want you to know that I'm okay if you disagree with me. And I hope that you're okay if you disagree with me. We, we need more division in this country like I need more holiday desserts. I do not need more holiday desserts, believe me. And we don't need any more division in this country. So we're going to do our best to find a way forward out of our faith. So uh, a friend of mine, Justin Lee, is an author and a speaker. And he put a, a, a post on his Facebook page a year ago. And I read this in a series when we launched the church I'm going to read it again because I think his, his statement that he put on Facebook summarizes our time so well. I haven't read anything any better that, that describes how hard it is to talk about these issues. It's going to be on the screen for you. Let's read. Justin wrote, this morning, I read an interesting news article about how politicians from both sides of the aisle agreed that the state of U.S. politics is broken due to polarization and tribalism. I started to post the article here. It's relevant to my latest book, after all, and it's a topic I'm very interested in. But just as I'd finished crafting some thoughtful words to accompany the post, I started thinking about what would happen when I posted it. Someone, I'm sure, would respond by pointing a finger. It's really the fault of politician, party, social group, etc. Someone would agree. Someone else would disagree and point a finger in a different direction. Someone would suggest that the fault lies on all sides, prompting someone else to rail against false equivalence. Someone would think that by posting about polarization without pointing a specific finger, I was letting certain people off the hook. And as I thought about all that, I decided not to post it. But it stuck with me. So I decided to write this about why I didn't write that. This is why nuance matters. If we can't even talk about why we're not talking, because of how we anticipate others might respond, how will we work towards solutions? Isn't that great? I read that and I said, ah, beautiful. Just what a great summarization of our time. It reminds me of a couple who is so deep into their conflict that they can't even talk to each other at the therapist's office. That's what living in our country feels like right now to me. That we're not even sure how to even start talking about these issues. And so the issue that we're diving into today, as you know, is the issue of immigration. And I suppose in, in Arizona, 
this might be the most controversial issue that stirs up the strongest emotion. Maybe not. It may not be for you, but in general, it might be. And certainly nationally, this issue is, is one of the most emotionally charged issues. And uh, it's possible that this issue is what put our current president in office. This was his bread and butter. And so as we look at the issue of immigration, there are strong emotions. You might feel strong emotion about something that I say or something that you see on the screen. That's perfectly normal. Of course you are. Of course you're going to feel emotion about things that are important to you. And like I said before, if you disagree with me, I'm okay if you disagree with me. I hope that you're okay if you disagree with me. So we are known as a nation of immigrants. And often when we think about immigration in the United States, we think of the words of a poem. And you may not even know the title of it. You probably do. But it's called The New Colossus. And it was a poem written by Emma Lazarus in 1883 to raise money for the construction of, of a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. And then in 1903, the poem was cast into a bronze plaque and mounted inside the pedestal's lower level beneath the Statue of Liberty. And here's that, at least part of that poem. It says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. We think of that poem when we think of immigration as Americans, that the history of America is about welcoming people, and we are a nation of immigrants, and all of us came from a different land, more, more, than, more than likely. And so during this, uh, this uh, message today, I'm going to try to fairly represent two sides of the immigration issue, and this is going to be, it's too brief, it's too simple, I acknowledge that, I'm not an expert. You may not like my wording at times, I've done my best to summarize the best I could. These two sides, those who would support more border security and no illegal immigration and possibly less immigration in general, so that's one side, and then the other side, I'm going to try to describe, are those who may or may not support more border security, but they support a path to citizenship for current unauthorized immigrants. And probably connected with that is they, they probably don't believe that immigration is as important of an issue as the first group. So does that make sense? Those are the two groups of people that I'm going to try to fairly uh, take a look at and represent today. So for the first group. Those who support more border security, no illegal immigration, and possibly less immigration in general, here, here are uh, reasons they may cite for their view. Uh, and hopefully we'll all learn something today. I've learned something preparing this. So first of all, over, uh, overall, immigration to the United States has tripled over the past 30 years. So uh, right now, at least as, as of uh, June of last year, Pew Research found that 40 million people living in the United States were born in another country, with almost every country in the world represented, it's 13.6% of the U.S. population. And that's up from 4.7% in 1970. And it is the highest uh, percentage of, of uh, immigrants in the, in the country since the late 1800s. So immigration has tripled in the last generation. Along with that, in the same way, unauthorized immigration, illegal immigration to the U.S. has also tripled over the past 30 years. 75% of the foreign-born population in the United States are here legally. 75% of all immigrants in the United States are here legally. Uh, 10.5 million immigrants to the United States are here illegally. 
And you hear that, you hear the word 11, or the number 11 million tossed around. It's about 10 and a half million uh, unauthorized immigrants are currently in the United States, and they make up 3.2% of the population. So unauthorized immigrants currently in the United States make up 3.2% of our population. And it did, but it did triple since 1970. People who support this view might point to the fact that immigration is changing the uh, ethnic and cultural makeup of the United States. And that is true. Um, people who are white will be a minority in the United States somewhere around 2040 to 2050. And for people who believe that it's important to preserve their culture and they would view the culture of the United States as being a primarily European culture throughout our history, they're pointing to the fact that that's changing. And now, of course, that view could be held by someone who is simply interested in facts. There could be other reasons there, too. And I do believe there are people who hold this position who are, not, who are, who are holding the position not because they're racists, but because they are observing changes in our society, and they're saying, wait, let's, let's think about this. I don't uh, label everybody who holds a specific view here as, oh, these people are racist, or this other group is naive, or they're unpatriotic. Those labels are not helpful. So we're just pointing out reasons that a person might cite. People who view the issue this way uh, may believe, often believe, that immigration cost American citizens jobs. Now, there is some truth in that. There is not as much truth, probably, as some believe, but there is some truth in that. What um, uh, they're finding is, for instance, the Brookings Institute, Brookings Institute and the Economic Policy Institute found that native-born workers with less education and a lower skill level probably are adversely affected by immigration. People who have lower education and, a, and, and are less skilled workers, they probably are negatively affected by immigration. For most citizens of the United States, it's thought that immigration actually helps our economy and, and helps the rest of us. But there is a portion of our population who does have a legitimate concern about especially illegal immigration and how it does affect their job opportunities. There are also you know, other reasons that aren't on the screen. Um, some people who hold to this view might argue that there are political ramifications to increasing immigration. That politics is a system. And, and, and similar to physics, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so it might surprise you, one of those people recently was Hillary Clinton. Uh, in an interview with The Guardian, uh, November 22nd, 2018, um, Hillary praised the generosity shown by the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, or Angela Merkel, uh, but suggested immigration was inflaming voters and contributed to her loss and to Britain's vote to leave the EU, Brexit. And she said, I think Europe needs to get a handle on migration because that is what lit the flame. I admire the very generous and compassionate approaches that were taken, particularly by leaders like Angela Merkel, but I think it is fair to say Europe has done its part and must send a very clear message. We're not going to be able to continue to provide uh, refuge and support because if we don't deal with the migration issue, it will continue to roil the body politic. Now, remember when I said you might feel emotion during this series. When, you, when some people read that quote, they, 
it's, well, yeah, politics is a system, and, then when, and when immigration goes up, there is a rise in far-right nativists and nationalism who rise up against that immigration that they perceive as a threat. And that's the point she was making. And as a politician, as a leader, we should account for that in our strategy. I think that's the point she's making there. Now, there are other people who read that quote, and they think, wow, that's, that's some cold, calculating thinking. And, and, and so there are emotions even around that view. But surprising to some, that, that's a view that was expressed even by Hillary Clinton as she looks at the situation in the United States and in Europe and in far-right movements around the world that, where we see even a resurgence of, of Nazism in some places because they're reacting against immigration. So I've attempted to briefly summarize one view, and I'm sure I did a poor job at it, and there's much more that could be said, but I'm seeking to understand, and I hope you are too, I think you are too, I'm seeking to understand as fairly as possible different views on this issue. So let's go to the other view now. So people who would, who would be in favor of the same or less border security and a pathway to citizenship for people who are currently unauthorized immigrants to the United States, that they should have a way to become citizens instead of being deported. So people who hold to this view might say that illegal immigrants make up only 3% of the U.S. population. It's true that figure has tripled in the past generation, but it's only 3%. And to them, this issue is simply not a crisis. It's not as big of an issue as it is to people in the group that we just talked about. Uh, they might say that uh, unauthorized immigration has actually been declining for the past several years. So the number of unauthorized immigrant workers in the United States declined slightly from 8.2% in 2007 to 7.6% in 2017. So over a 10-year period, there's actually been a, a slight decrease in illegal immigration to the United States. They might also point out that immigration is largely concentrated in a few states. And so almost half of all uh, the, uh, the country's total 44.4 million immigrants live in just three states, and this is legal and illegal. Almost half live in just three states, California, Texas, and New York. Uh, in the 2016 election, uh, this is just an interesting fact that folks who hold to this view might point out, uh, the current president won by the largest margin in states that have the fewest immigrants and that are the farthest from the, the Mexican border. So West Virginia, Mississippi, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, Alabama, Kentucky, and South Dakota that are not border states. And actually there are very few immigrants, in the, legal or illegal, in those states. They might also point out that uh, refugees are not illegal immigrants. And so over this past year, we saw uh, people seeking asylum, largely from Central America, showing up at our southern border. And that was the bulk of the news story around immigration this past year, but they're not they're not trying to immigrate in, in the sense of a classic understanding of immigration. They're people who are seeking asylum from violent situations, and uh, they're applying for asylum in the United States. And since the creation of the Federal Refugee Resettlement Program in 1980, three million people have come to the U.S. as refugees, and that's less than 1% of our, our current population. Uh, they're here 
uh, legally as refugees, as asylum seekers. And so they go through a court system. It is true that some people who cross our borders seeking asylum do disappear into the country, and they, they just kind of fall out of the court system, and we, and we lose track of them. But these asylum seekers arriving from Central America are not illegal immigrants. They're people who are seeking asylum. So you may have trouble believing this. I understand if you do. Um, or maybe some of you might uh, more quickly be with me and agree with me. Uh, I'm not sure. But I believe there are compassionate, fair-minded, thinking people who disagree on the immigration issue. I don't think it's as simple as one side wears the white hats and one side wears the black hats. I think very few things in life are actually that simple. And so I give the benefit of the doubt to people who have a different view than me, and I want to be able to hear them out. And at the same time, there are some things that we do have to acknowledge about immigration and the history of immigration in our country if we're going to fairly talk about it and see how our faith can apply to that. So I just kind of want to run down some, some highlights, or you might call them lowlights, of the history of immigration in the United States, and then we're going to talk about what our faith has to say about that, and then we're going to end with some great news, some, some great news that you may not expect. And so let's look at the history of immigration. So quickly, of course, Native Americans lived here before any of us arrived, and uh, we're about five miles north of a Native American reservation. And so this land was occupied before any Europeans or wherever you're from, other than being Native American, before we arrived here, there were people here. Europeans began relocating North America in the 1600s, primarily from England. Africans were brought as slaves. Slavery was legal in America longer than it's been illegal. Uh, the Dutch settled New Amsterdam, for example. Now, what's it called now? New Amsterdam is now called New York. And German Lutherans arrived. Scots-Irish Presbyterians settled in the mid-Atlantic the mid states, largely my ancestors. There was always tension between the various cultures. Many immigrants arrived to the United States as indentured servants, essentially slaves themselves. The French and Spanish sent explorers and settlers to North America as well. The first European explorer in Arizona was Marcos de Niza in the 1500s. Arizona belonged to Mexico until we took it following the Mexican-American War in 1848. The U.S. bought southern Arizona in the Gadsden Purchase, and now Hispanics and Latinos, of course, feel anti-immigrant feelings um, in this part of the country, and that's been a part of American history. In 2010, Arizona passed the, the controversial SB 1070 law, requiring all people who have immigrated to carry documents with them. If they're stopped, they had to produce their papers. And there were people who believed that would unfairly target people who weren't white. And so even in Arizona, there has been controversy. And then in the 1600s and 1700s, up to 200,000 Irish Catholics immigrated to the United States to escape poverty and famine. And they were greeted with a great amount of prejudice, mostly Protestant settlers. And you may or may not know this, but the Irish were depicted... Uh, in political cartoons as wild beasts. Uh, maybe, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. It was common for the Irish in political cartoons to be uh, depicted as gorillas. Do you know that? As, as apes. And they would, they would write it 
G-O apostrophe Rilla. Like the Irish, you know, like O'Reilly or something. Go Rilla. I have a, a political cartoon here. This was drawn by Thomas Nast in 1871. And it's entitled, The Usual Irish Way of Doing Things. And you have this drunken ape or gorilla. And he's swinging a bottle, like a, you know, a bottle of alcohol, liquor bottle. And he's sitting on top of a powder keg. And, and that's how the Irish were depicted. And in the 1800s, immigrants from, immigrants from China arrived and other parts of Asia. And they were immediately greeted with prejudice. Whites called them the Yellow Peril. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, prohibiting Chinese immigrants from entering America for the next 10 years. It was motivated, it was a ban on Chinese immigrants. It was motivated by both racial and religious prejudice. And then in, after World War II, of course, prejudice against Asians. Um, uh, there were concentration camps for, the, for Japanese Americans. And then just this past Christmas night in Seattle, a man saw two Korean-American men with a Korean relative in downtown Seattle. And the guy started hating, or he started shouting, I hate Chinese. And he ran up behind them and like, started hitting them. So he saw two Korean-American guys and their Korean relative, and, and I hate Chinese, and started hitting them. And so even, even now, we have seen uh, an uptick in instances of violence, against people who are even perceived to be immigrants, even though they're not. They've been in America for generations. Um, on August 11th and 12th, 2017, marchers descended on Charlottesville, Virginia for the Unite the Right rally after the city of Char Charlottesville voted to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee from a town park. Of course, you have seen this photo, this, this next photo. Hundreds of marchers carried torches, Nazi flags, Confederate flags, the Gadsden flag, as they marched, 30 people were injured. One of the marchers named James Alex Fields Jr. drove his car into a crowd, killing Heather Hare and injuring 19 other people. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 419 years recently. The phrase that we've heard more over the past few years is domestic terrorism. Because there is a measurable rise in violence perpetuated generally by white people against people of color, and people they perceive to be immigrants, even if they're not, or people of a different skin color or tradition. NPR uh, reported, and this isn't another picture you're going to see, and I'm just warning you, this is one where we said if you experience emotion, then of course you would experience emotion. Now, this past year, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez, 25 years old, died as he tried to bring his 23-month-old daughter, Angie Valeria, to safety and a new life in the, in the U.S. His wife, uh, Tania, says she watched from the shore as her husband and daughter were pulled away by a strong river current near the border uh, crossing uh, between Mexico and Brownsville, Texas. And this little family was fleeing poverty in El Salvador and, and violence. Uh, they had secured a humanitarian visa to Mexico, but after spending two months in a migrant camp waiting to apply for asylum in the U.S., Martinez decided that they should try to cross the border, and uh, when he tried to cross the border with his daughter, they were washed away in a current. And these were people who, once again, were seeking asylum 
from violence in Central America where, where drug cartels have killed and raped and sold children into sex slavery and committed atrocities that are unimaginable. And these folks are trying to flee that with their families. And just briefly, the policies of the United States towards Central America over the past 10 to 15 years have played a role in that violence. It's just something for us to think about as people of faith, as people who want to live out our faith in the world. We believe in loving our neighbors as ourselves. How does loving our neighbor in Central America influence our policies towards these people in Central America? How could we act towards Central America in such a way that they wouldn't need to flee violence as much? What could we do about that? If you don't know much about that issue, that would be something to Google. And it's, it's quite enlightening. So we are a nation of laws, and, and we want people to, to obey laws. People who come into the country illegally, it's, it is illegal. And we have a border, and borders are important. I, I believe that. You, you may disagree with me, but I believe that. I believe borders are important. But then, how do we treat our neighbors? And then from, just quickly, before we move on, from April to June 2018, approximately 5,500 migrant children, and possibly more, were separated from their parents as they sought asylum in the United States from these Central American countries. The child separation policy was put into effect as a deterrent to discourage families from seeking asylum here. And there may be more children who were separated. The actual number is unknown. Time said that in Harlingen, Texas, attorney Jody Goodwin says just over two weeks ago she reunited a migrant father with his seven-year-old child after they'd been kept apart for 14 months. This is this past October they wrote this story. So a father and his seven-year-old child had been reunited after being separated for 14 months. I have two boys, nine and almost four. The child is one of 2,814 possible defendants in a class action lawsuit against Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, a case known as Ms. L versus ICE, which represents the children separated during the implementation of the administration's zero tolerance policy. Even though thousands of children separated under that policy have so far been reunited, 27 remain in government custody as of September 6th, according to court records. And so, and then a couple of weeks ago, we saw an attack on a rabbi's home in New York by a man with a machete. And uh, the Anti-Defamation League found that incidents of violence against Jewish Americans increased by 37% between 2016 and 2017. And so as we talk about two views of the issue, it is important, of course, and I know that was kind of a long section, you know, apologies there, and you're sitting on a hard bench, but I think it's important for those of us who want to think fairly about these issues also see the context of immigration in our country and what it's looked like throughout history as we try to apply our faith to that. So let's look at, let's look at the, the Bible here quickly. Um, citizenship was recognized in the ancient world. Um, migration took place continually. If you were a citizen, though, you were probably a citizen of a city because nations didn't exist in, in uh, the cultures of the Bible the way they do now. Borders were not as hard as they are now, um, 
For example, Paul was a citizen of the city of Rome, if you're familiar with his, you know, his writings in the New Testament. And uh, the requirements to become a citizen were often different than ours. We, you know, we take a test to become a citizen uh, uh, if you're coming from another country. Israelite tribes were different from ours. Jewish males were marked by, as citizens of their tribe by circumcision. And it's thought that perhaps the Egyptians practiced circumcision to show their citizenship. I'm sure men would rather just take a written test than go through that to, to prove their citizens. But throughout world history... People who immigrate to a new territory are viewed with suspicion. That's just human nature. And that's, the, that's uh, in the Bible as well. And in Scripture, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament, we're told repeatedly to resist those prejudiced attitudes and to show hospitality to the foreigner, to the immigrant. I'm not saying that means we shouldn't have a border, that we shouldn't have laws, or that there should be immigration reform. Once again... We're living in a different context than the Bibles, but we want to understand theirs. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God has delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He led them through foreign lands to a new home, the promised land, where they were immigrants. And he gave this instruction to them, For the Lord your God is, God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, the immigrant, the stranger residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, immigrants. For you yourselves were foreigners or immigrants in Egypt. That's in our scripture. The word foreigner occurs 146 times in the Bible. It's almost always in the context of God showing kindness to the foreigner. The author of Hebrews 13.2 highlights the need for hospitality. He says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers we're going to talk about that word here in a second. Strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So there's this idea that when you show hospitality to somebody who needs it, a, a foreigner, a stranger in your land, maybe you're even showing that hospitality to God, or a representative of God, like an angel. That word stranger there is the Greek word xenos, X-E-N-O-S. Of course, you recognize that word's where we get our word xenophobia. And so xenophobia is the fear of the other, the fear of people who are different. Yes, the fear of immigrants, strangers, but the fear of anybody we think is different than us. And we're told to resist that fear. And then the ultimate example probably comes from Matthew chapter 25. It's a depiction of the last judgment. And this righteous king sits on the throne as the judge. And in this story, that's, that's Jesus. For us as people who want to follow Jesus, this is a story Jesus tells. Jesus says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, there's that word xenos. I was a stranger, immigrant, foreigner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or, and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, a xenos, an immigrant, a foreigner, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Jesus, when, when were you any of those things? The king will reply, truly I tell you, 
whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, for somebody who wants to follow Jesus, you read a passage like that, and you may be in either camp in the views that we looked at about immigration. But that passage, if you're a follower of Jesus, informs your view, doesn't it? That passage makes demands on you as a follower of Jesus. We, can, we are a nation of laws, and we believe in, we have a border, and there are, there are dangerous things that can come across that border if it's not monitored. That We've seen that happen. And at the same time, what does it mean that we are to show kindness to the foreigner? Does it mean that we don't have a border and everybody just comes in and there may be some people who believe that? And there, there are others who would say, well, maybe it looks like a fair immigration process. And where we are giving people hope and, and asylum seekers have a place where they can, they can seek refuge. Maybe it looks like that. There, there are no simple answers here. It's not going to be, well, I read that passage, so definitely I have to, I have to vote one way. No, our context is a little different than the the context here, but certainly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you read that passage and you think, wow, that that has to play a role in how I view immigration in this country. And there was a little boy uh, who, uh, this past Christmas, um, and Susie, I think I, I, I skipped it so we can go back to his picture here in a second, but there's a little boy who was born with half of a heart. Did you see the story in the news? Uh, some congenital defect caused half of his heart to be underdeveloped. And so only half of his heart works. And he's had three open-heart surgeries, the first, I think, when he was just a few days old. And his parents have created a Facebook page to update everybody on his condition. And it's probably thousands of followers. And, and um, they wanted to, uh, uh, people who were followers of them on Facebook, wanted to send him toys for Christmas because they just love this little boy. And they want to support him and encourage him. And his parents said, he's four years old. His name is Elliot. He's four years old. His parents said that he decided if he was going to get all these toys, he wanted to share those toys with other kids. And so they partnered with the local police in Arlington, Texas, and they created a toy drive in, his, in Elliot's honor. And all these people donated toys. And this boy with half a heart decided that he wanted to share his toys with others at Christmas. And so the, the police came and they put him in a little vest and he got to be an honorary cop for a day. And I saw that story, you know, a boy with half a heart showed compassion towards other kids and he's four years old. And I thought, well, that's, that'll preach. He, he's got a big heart. And as we look at this issue Regardless of how we stand, I believe there are thinking people who could vote either way, who could be in either one of those camps, but certainly for a follower of Jesus, we're called to use, yes, our heads and also our hearts when it comes to this issue. This issue. Okay, I'm going to head towards wrapping it up now. There are no cushions on those seats, and as I said, the mind can only, uh, what is it, the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. Is that the saying? So we're going to, we're going to. Go towards the end here. You ready for some good news? Are you ready for some amazing news? And I'm not kidding. Are you ready for some great news? You want to hear something? All right. You may not believe it at first because it doesn't feel like this. But numbers taken by uh, Pew Research, which is one of the most reputable polling groups in the United States, they're also corroborated by Gallup, which is another 
one of the most reputable polling companies in the United States. Numbers from scientific polls taken by smart people who are researchers on these subjects are telling a different story than the story that we feel in our culture around this issue and most of the issues we're going to talk about in this series. Numbers and facts and reality paint a different picture than the one that we feel, the one that we see so often. And that picture is there is actually more overlap on our beliefs as Americans, our opinions, than we think. And that overlap shows a way forward on this issue and the rest of them. So, for example, some more stats as we march toward a close here. 49% of Democrats say increasing border security is an important goal. 91% of Republicans say the same. Regarding a path to citizenship for unauthorized immigrants, 48% of Republicans agree that it's important or very important. And 82% of Democrats say the same. Majorities in both parties, over 50% in both parties, say that taking in refugees fleeing war and violence is an important goal. So I want you to take a look at those two statements right there. Obviously, the numbers are different, but notice the low numbers. What's a majority? 51, right? That's pretty, that's pretty close, correct? Even the low numbers are pretty close. So take a look at those two statements and a second observation. I'm no master negotiator. But when you look at those two statements, do you see a potential deal that could be made between Republicans and Democrats on that issue? Do you see how, well, we can get about half of you to agree on this, and almost all of us agree on this, and, and on, you know, in the other issue, it's flipped. So what if we made a deal? What if we negotiated and we said, you know what, people who want more border security and, and whether, whether that looks like personnel, fences where needed, e-verify, software, technology, okay, more border security, and in return, there will be a path to citizenship for unauthorized immigrants. Do you see how that deal could be, is begging to be made? Do you see that? In our politics, that's called comprehensive immigration reform. We've gotten close. But that represents, at least you're starting to see, the will of the American people. But wait, there's more. From that same study, watch this. Of all groups polled, Democrats, Republicans, people who lean that way. Let's go to the next slide. Hopefully we have it up there. Of all groups polled, 68% of Americans say we should increase security along the U.S.-Mexico border. 67% say we should establish, should establish a path for current unauthorized immigrants to stay here legally. And 73% of all Americans said it's important or somewhat important that we take in refugees fleeing war and violence. Is that a surprise to you, those numbers? Those numbers are not a picture of division. You, real, you realize that? All, of the, all three of those numbers are super majorities, two-thirds. When two-thirds of a population believe something, that should be a piece of cake. That's a no-brainer. Two-thirds, mean that means you don't lose. So another recurring theme you're going to see in this series is that 
there is great overlap and agreement among Americans that we don't feel in our culture because our elected officials are not carrying out the will of the American people. That may be the greatest concern to any American who is a thinking, compassionate person. That the clear will of the American people is not being enacted by our elected officials. That's not news to informed Americans. There are reasons why that's taking place. It's, it's not a mystery. Some of those reasons, and there are people, there are Democrats and Republicans who would agree on this too, is dark money and politics. It's people being able to donate untold amounts of money to political causes without having to disclose where that's coming from. So you can't see their agenda. It's often obvious. And another reason would be gerrymandering, where congressional districts are drawn so that about 25% of the House of Representatives is undefeatable. They can, they can be as extreme as they want in their home district and they'll never lose because their district looks like you know, a, a magical sea serpent or something drawn across the state meant to just include people who agree with them and they'll never lose a primary. So they can vote as extreme as they want and they can essentially hijack the United States of America. Another reason, there are more, but another reason, we'll stop here, is that we have two medias in this country. And we've talked about this before here. Where if you're a conservative, you probably watch one media. And if you're a progressive, you watch one media. And we don't even know what the other side is seeing. And you can have a conversation with somebody. I'm sure you've had this experience. And you hear them say something about politics. And you're like, huh? Where did they get that? Like, what country are you living in? The reason is, our perception is that we're living in two different countries. Because we're only seeing one side of the story biased by political cable news or social media. And we're not, even, we're not even seeing the same facts and reality anymore. And that leads to an environment where we feel like we're more divided than we actually are. What if the American people were able to see reality and say, wait a second, there's a clear will of the American people. Of course it requires compromise. Of course. That's what democracy requires. But why isn't our will being done? What if over the next few years we could even recover our democracy? And maybe we do that, as, at least as people of faith, by asking, what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? What does it look like to love the people who voted differently than I do? The same way I love myself. What does it mean to, look, to love Central Americans the way I love myself? What does it mean to love people of a different ethnicity or religious background than I do? What does it mean to love them as I love myself? And in doing so, we can actually see we're not as divided as we think we are. They're decent human beings, religious or not religious, who can agree enough that there is a clear path forward. We're going to take communion in a moment, and we, we have servers who can take their places. Our band can come up. There's a clear consensus among Americans on this issue. And as, as spiritually minded people, as we get ready to take communion, we're told in Scripture that we, in a sense, are foreigners in a foreign land, that we are immigrants. And maybe this is a little too deep or heavy, I don't know, but do you ever have the feeling sometimes... You look at this world and everything we're going through and even the events of the past few days. 
And man, sometimes I just feel like I don't belong here. You ever have that feeling? Sometimes I look at the problems in the world and I just think, man, there has to be a better way. And you talk about a better way forward and sometimes you just feel like you're going to get shouted down and you're just one grain of sand and you're trying to swim against the, you know, the tide and, and it just seems like, man, why can't more of us get this? That if, if we could come together a little bit more, there's such a, a brighter future for us than what we're currently experiencing. Well, the author of Hebrews in the Bible lists all these people like Abraham and Noah who had great faith. And it says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Our spiritual ancestors were foreigners and strangers on earth. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And remember, citizenship was tied to the city. There's this idea, as we get to take communion here this morning, that this is an invitation into God's city. It's an invitation if you feel like a foreigner in a foreign land and you say, man, there's so much better for this world. This world is not as it should be, and there's such a, a better path if we could just... If we could, yes, love, and that doesn't, it doesn't have to be naive. It doesn't have to be Pollyannish. But where we could have a, enough of a discussion that we could force our elected officials to enact the will of the American people. And we could have a democracy, and we can make this world better. And you feel like you're in a foreign land sometimes. Well, you're, in, you're invited into God's city. You're invited to be a citizen of, of some community all over the world regardless of race and religion and nationality and all these things that divide us, you're invited to be a part of God's community and a citizen of God's community where we can believe together that there is a better way. And God loves us and welcomes us and shows hospitality to us and, and we can, we can let, his, let his love flow through us in the same way as citizens of his city.